Today we're going to be learning how to become a better leader and also taking a look at the Filmmakers Academy with Director of Photography, Shane Hurlbut, ASC. Welcome to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. My name is Joaquin Elizondo and I edit films and scripted TV shows in Hollywood. I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program to help aspiring editors start or advance their careers in post-production. I don't have any training in coaching or some fancy degree in psychology. I'm just a guy who is relentless in pursuing his goals and wants to help people do the same. But I didn't achieve happiness and success in my career alone. Throughout the years, I've come across some amazing people that have offered valuable advice and guidance. That's why I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, to help people navigate the path to achieving their career goals. I've been in your shoes and gone through the same struggles. The challenges and fears on this journey are real. And I want to tell you, it is possible. I have a deep appreciation for cinematography and it was actually something I wanted to pursue after graduating college. So I'm very excited to have Shane Hurlbut ASC on the show today. And he's going to share stories and experiences of how he became not only an award-winning cinematographer, but also an educator. And he's going to tell us all about his Filmmakers Academy, which is a versatile premium online filmmaking platform that unlocks a whole new realm of educational possibilities for creatives. Shane works at the forefront of cinema as a storyteller, innovator, and discerning collaborator who brings more than three decades of experience to his art. He is a member of the American Society of Cinematographers, the International Cinematographers Guild, Local 600, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Some of Shane's feature film credits include Room of the World and The Babysitter, directed by McGee, We Are Marshall, Terminator Salvation, Need for Speed, and Act of Valor. His additional film credits include Semi-Pro, The Greatest Game Ever Played, Into the Blue, Mr. 3000, and Drumline. Notably, his television credits include the first season of AMC's Into the Badlands. In 2021, Shane, along with his wife Lydia, created the Filmmakers Academy, which delivers outstanding online education on filmmaking, cinematography, lighting, production, post-production workflows, and lifestyle from the best industry professionals in the business. Created by filmmakers for filmmakers, its mentors and masterclass courses not only equip members with the knowledge needed to thrive in the industry, but it packs information about the nuances of the trade, useful film hacks, and relevant terminology. Filmmakers Academy is a resource for filmmakers who want to master their craft, meet like-minded creatives, and grow. And I'm excited to share that I'm joining the Filmmakers Academy as their editing mentor. And it's been great working with their team and the other mentors and creating courses about the craft of editing. So make sure to check it out at filmmakersacademy.com. You can find the link in the show notes. Some of the topics Shane and I will be discussing on the show today include the importance of learning how to be a leader, developing resilience to thrive in this industry, choosing the right projects to help advance your career, the future of cinematography, overcoming challenges when trying to break into feature films, how to shine a spotlight on yourself and stand out from others, the importance of having a significant other that supports your career goals, and we'll hear all about the Filmmakers Academy. So we have our first director of photography here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Shane Hurlbut, ASC, is here with us today. Shane, very happy to have you here. How are you doing? 
I'm doing fantastic, Joaquin. Thank you so much for having me and uh, looking forward to uh, discussing my career and uh, dropping some golden nuggets for everyone to take away from this baby. <laughs> I know you have a lot because, uh, well, I've been following you for many years now. One of, the, one of the reasons why I'm very excited to have you here is because, you know, like I, I mentioned to you and, and to this audience is that I wanted to be a, a DP, Director of Photography, coming out of college. And then and I got hooked onto Hurlbut Visuals. Nice. Several years ago when this whole DSLR revolution started happening. And so I, I know a lot about your career and following your career. That being said, you know, having the first DP here on the podcast, that's exciting. And also very excited that we're gonna get to work together through the Filmmakers Academy. Absolutely. Yes. But Shane, just like I start off with the uh, with everyone here, I want to hear about you and your, your career. How did you get started? as a director of photography in in Hollywood. Did you always know that you wanted to be a cinematographer? No, no. I, I came out of film school thinking I was going to be a producer. So I was all, I, I could convince anyone to do anything. And I was good with uh, getting deals. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, that's what a producer does. A lot of the stuff, you know, they form those relationships and loyalty and, and all that stuff. And that's what I thought I was going to be. I thought that's what my my job was when I was in film school. I didn't like lighting. I didn't like uh, camera so much. Uh, so that was kind of what I thought I was going to be. And so I, my mom was nice enough to, to send me a three piece suit up to Boston. And I started pounding the pavement in Boston, trying to get an entry level position as a producer. And, uh, you know, after the 26 door was slammed in my face, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go back to that rental house that I interned at and try it from that point of view. And I fell in love with lighting and I fell in love with grip, really grip first, because, you know, I grew up on a farm and, you know, I was always driving trucks and tractors and plows and having to fix stuff. And a lot of the stuff that you do on a farm is a lot of what you do as a grip, you know, you're stabilizing, you're rigging, you're doing all these things. That, and I had a lot of that common sense knowledge just growing up on the farm. So uh, that was kind of where I started is just gripping and shaping light and, and moving the camera. And, you know, when you think about it, learning to be a cinematographer, when you come up on the technical side, you think about what a grip does. A grip is camera support. Uh, a grip shapes light. So you start to understand contrast. Uh, and it's all about the feeling of moving the camera when it feels right, moving with the actors and moving with the emotion. Right. So that was a great uh, foundation for me as uh, becoming a cinematographer. And then when I started to add the lighting stand of electric and gaffing, then that just, uh, you know, took it to a whole other side of understanding light quality and quantity and, and knowing what light would, that's, that's the, the biggest thing. There's a lot of director photographies that come up through camera that just don't know the output of lights. Obviously, when they get more experience and they've done it enough, they understand, OK, an 18K, 12 feet out of window is going to give me this stop at this point. But that was just all ingrained in me. I knew exactly what light, when to use which light, 
Uh, and, you know, it just kept on snowballing from there. Take us back, though, to that first project that you shot where you were behind the camera. What was our experience like? Yeah. So uh, just like everything, when you're a gaffer and I was very in demand, so I was constantly getting called to go to Spain, go to Brazil, go to this. And so I was getting pulled. I wanted to make the jump to being a director of photography, but I was getting pulled because, you know, my family, obviously, and, and uh, you know, keeping the support of our my family and everything. So uh, the monetary concern of making that jump to a DP. Uh, so what I had to do was I had to charge as a gaffer exactly what the DP was charging. <laughs> So I could could convince my clients that kept on hiring me as a gaffer that they just couldn't afford it anymore. Right. So I did like three gigs. I did one in Spain, one in Brazil, and then one in the United States somewhere with this one cinematographer that I worked with like a ton, Joseph Yako. I love the man to death. He taught me so much. And so I was like, he goes, Shane, this is really killing me. You know, I can't afford to be donating most of my rate so the, that you can be hired. Uh, I think I got to find another gaffer. And I'm like, yes, Joseph, that's what I've been trying to tell you for the last three months. <laughs> and so finally I forced their hands and uh, my first jump was uh, come as you are on Nirvana. And we were in an aircraft hangar uh, in Van Nuys. And we had built this elaborate set with all these walls that drip water. And we had this 12 by 16 foot waterfall that fell down glass so we could shoot through it. And there was swinging, um, you know, chandeliers. And it was just a very abstract uh, space that I was lighting. And, you know, being behind the camera for kind of really the first time was was um, scary, you know, because I had been this uh, director was also a cameraman. So he was a director cameraman. So he finally gave me the reins. Uh, he still operated camera and I operated another camera, but he said, this is going to be yours. I, I'm, I'm giving you the reins to you've been with me for a long time and I want to be able to, uh, you know, help your career and support it. So sure enough, you know, I got in the camera, I started operating and then he finally would go back to the monitor and hop off the camera and then coach me in regards to the operating and what I was doing. And and uh, so it was a it was a wonderful uh, experience because I had that director cameraman that was supporting me and also helping me through the whole process. I mean, you came up working on some amazing music videos. I mean, I still remember that Come As You Are video so good. What was your biggest takeaway from working on these types of projects? Music videos at that time were the creme de la creme, right? It was so big. Uh, and, you know, the when I did November Rain, the budget was $2.8 million. They don't spend $2.8 million on any music video anymore, right? $2.8 million. And Don't Cry was $2.3 million. So I did both of those back to back. So, yeah. And, you know, it was just, it was huge. And the amount of experimentation that you could do in music videos, because it didn't, you know, if you failed, you still succeeded. 
And that was the best learning experience. I mean, at one point in my career, I did a hundred music videos two years in a row. So when everyone's like, Shane, you came up the ladder fast. And I go, well, let's look at that for a second. How many people have done a hundred music videos in two, in, 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 you know, in two years straight. So 200 music videos in two years, that is a lot of learning. That's like what it would normally be six years for somebody, but I was able to just keep these things cranking and move from, I had so many different directors that I could pull from and, and, and that would be hiring me to shoot. And I was fast and I was experimental. Uh, You know, I had three great mentors, let's say four. I had Joseph Yako that was all about beauty. I had Herb Ritz that I was uh, his, basically his lighter for all his stills from 1991 to 96. I really learned how to light a face. Then I had Daniel Pearl, who was an amazing cinematographer and shot some of the most iconic music videos of our time. Okay. He gave me balls. And then Kevin Kerslake, the director cameraman that I did all the grunge era rock and roll, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Nirvana, Live, uh, you know, all those those bands. He gave me the no rules. Everything was breaking rules all the time. It was like, okay, how can we how can we expose this normally? No, no, no. We're never going to expose anything normally. We're going to break the rules. So it's like we came up with a process that still is so amazing to this day. We would shoot negative film stock. We would then process it as a positive. Then we would take it out of that positive. We would make another inner negative off of it. And off of that inner negative, we'd make another positive off of it. Off of that positive, we'd make another inner negative. And then off of the inner negative, we would make that last positive. That's what we did for filter. Hey man, nice shot. Uh, you know, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, Interstate Love Song, uh, Vaseline, you know, those that look was so unique, you know, and and that's what was so great about him is he just wanted to break the rules. I remember all those videos that you're mentioning in the look, especially <laughs> the, the STP ones. Oh, yeah. Would you say, I mean, between the rental houses and now working with, you know, your mentors, I mean, this is kind of like your your film school, that was what, where you learned mostly everything. That was where I learned everything. You know, in film school, all I took from film school was this. Being able to be on my own, living with roommates, uh, having responsibility that wasn't my parents helping me out, and just learning to survive by yourself. Basically becoming an adult. That's what film school gave me. That's it. Uh, contacts, none, uh, you know, any alumni support, none, uh, you know, it's like, I, I, it just was not there, even though I went to Emerson, which has an amazing alumni an incredible, uh, list of people that have come from that college. It's just, it didn't where I was going. Everyone wanted to be a director or a writer or a producer. Nobody wanted to be a grip. 
So there was no support in that realm, right? You're not going to a film school to become a grip. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I can certainly relate. And the, a lot of people I talk to, you know, have the same thoughts about that. And we'll definitely get to talk about more about education later in this, in this podcast. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. But going back to then when you're shooting uh, music videos, then at what point do you start to get an interest or, or you start to make your way into narrative filmmaking? Yeah, so that was a hard one to crack. Um, I remember sitting down with my agent, um, Stacy Sheriff. She was just a godsend to me. Um, you know, I met her and she was, she took my, I had this very like montage reel of stuff that I had put together. And she was like, all right, I'm going to sign you. And uh, she launched my commercial career for sure. I mean, I was working with Bob Giraldi and, you know, Herb Ritz and all these high end directors of, of the day. And she turned to me and she said, you know, if you're going to go narrative, you need to leave me. And you need to uh, because I I'm just not in that realm. I'm music video and commercial. And it was so honest and so upfront. And she goes, here's the thing. Commercial and music videos, they don't have a career. You're never going to be a commercial and music video career. Maybe Daniel Pearl broke that mold. He has made a career out of shooting commercials and music videos. But there's not many people that have had a long career of shooting music videos and commercials. Um, she said, to really extend your career and have a long, successful career, you have to do narrative. So I left her, went to the Gersh Agency, and uh happened to be shooting this low budget um well i wouldn't say low budget it wasn't so low budget but it was you know it was a donna summer video and bruce roberts and it was for the the movie daylight and we were shooting it uh and uh i was doing all these very unique camera um applications. Uh, I was using the Fraser lens at the time, which was this long kind of periscope styled lens, but it would force, it would give you uh, this amazing force perspective because it was such a wide angle lens and you could get it so low and it had a mirror in it so it could spin the image. And, and because you were panning this thing, it, it moved, it showed motion. So when you're on a camera and you pan, you're on nodal, but when you got something that's uh, 26 inches out from the lens, when you pan, it's like a camera move. Right. So I was doing all these moves, dolly moves and with this mixed with Donna Summer and everything. And Rob Cohen had his producing team come down just to see the uh, check out and make sure Donna Summer was all cool. And Bruce Roberts, you know, Rob Cohen is an incredible hands on director. I love that about it. Uh, and. I guess the producing team came back to Rob and they go, I just want to tell you, I've never been on a music video set like that where this director of photography commands the set. You need to work with this man. So all of a sudden I got a call and he goes, Shane, uh, I'd love for you to come in for an interview uh, with me to do the Rat Pack. And I was like, whoa, okay. So he sent me the script and I went in with 12 B 
barrels blazing. I had all these reference books and all this stuff of what I wanted it to look like and how I wanted it to feel. And I didn't want it to be safe. And I wanted to break rules just like the Rat Pack did. And I wanted their life to be on stage. So when they were on stage, the lighting was perfect. When they were off stage, the lighting was perfect. It was, it felt like their whole life on and off stage never changed. Uh, so they were always in the spotlight, always in the press, always in the, uh, you know, so that was kind of my idea. And then I went to George Harrell as the inspiration uh, and, you know, broke that all down. And sure enough, the interview went, went very well. And I was hired to shoot the Rat Pack for HBO. And that was my intro into narrative. But it was it was a rocky road because HBO said, what's this guy got? He's not shot any narrative. He hasn't commercials. They're not really narrative Uh, music videos. They're just band playing music, you know? So they hired, I didn't know this at the time. They hired a whole other director of photography, a whole other camera lighting and grip crew. And they had them on standby for one week. Wow. Just in case (laughs) waiting for me to fail. Wow. And I only learned this from Rob Cohen when we officially wrapped. He came up to me and told me this. And I was just like taken completely back because I'm like, thank you so much for not sharing that in the beginning uh, with me, uh, because I would have really kind of gone internal. And I think my mind would have made a big deal about this. But On the first day of dailies, they came back and the first words out of their mouth to Rob Cohen is who the fuck is this guy and where did you find him? Because this is the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. And it was like, bang, we were off to the races. (laughs) Wow. That's I mean, that's a, that's a great story. And I I love hearing that, but I mean, I gotta think that, you know, say even at the time where you were coming off of being, you know, um, a gaffer shooting music videos and then getting into narrative filmmaking. I mean, I'm sure you came across some obstacles, some challenges. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy. No. What were some of those challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah. So the first challenge, just getting into the business was a massive challenge. I mean, I came out to LA uh, from Boston and I just started working at a rental house again uh, just to get my foot in the door. And, you know, the one thing about breaking into this business, and I'll just give this advice, I give it out very, uh, you know, um, I say wisely, um, is that the only way you're going to make it in this industry is by shining a spotlight on you. Because if you don't do things that are different from what everyone else is doing, then why is anyone going to hire you? So what my first intro into the business was working in a rental house. And when I watched everyone walk, I ran. When I watched everyone take their lunch break, I would complete the truck and then take a break. Everything was doing it 180% instead of 70 to 100%. And I was in and out of that rental house in three months. 
a producer came that saw me running around in the parking lot. And the guy's like, who is that guy? And they're like, there's this crazy guy from Boston, man. He's just got a ton of energy. He's just running circles around our staff. (laughs) Doesn't stop, huh? That was the spotlight that I shined on myself. And by doing that, that started my career. Now, after that, it was like a cliff. I fell off. There was, you know, I left the rental house. I worked on that feature. And then after that, it went dark for almost a year. I didn't get any gigs. And, you know, I had to, you know, really go inside my soul to, you know, figure out how I could still make it in this business. So I started, there used to be a, a, a magazine that came out that had all these publications like uh, what actors access. Right. Uh, So, and they would have these short films or feature films that were deferred pay. Well, you never got paid. It was a freebie. So you'd work for four weeks on a movie for free. And that's how I started. I worked on probably 10 of those movies that I never got paid, but I got experience. And they were able to feed us. They took care of us, but we were all working for deferred pay. So I thought that was the most amazing way to learn. Now, I don't even think those things exist anymore. Uh, But this was how I broke into the business and started to get more experience so I could then work on the bigger jobs. But I would I, I would say, you know, obstacles were, you know, just because you get a movie doesn't mean you're going to get another one. Right. Uh, You have to really um, like shine a spotlight on yourself so people really see it. Like, I'll I'll never forget, I wanted to start working in camera so I could learn camera. So I was at this rental house doing camera and prepping them and all that stuff. And I was there for, you know, six months. And I was like, God, when am I ever going to, when is anyone going to ever see me? So I finally got the, the urge to, talk to my marketing guy and I go, can you give me all the information on this first assistant that's coming in so I can, you know, talk to him? Sure. So I called him up and I go, Jim, I just want to tell you, uh, I got your four camera package all prepped. I've gone through and labeled all the boxes with lenses and close focus. I have created Velcro filter tabs for all your filters so you can put on the map box. And I just want to arrange for uh, my, um, rental house to go pick up any carts that you might have. What do you like in your coffee? And what can I get you for breakfast? I was there for three more days and I was gone because people saw that I was going way above and beyond. And I tell this to prep techs all the time at Keslo camera. When I'm prepping down there, I go, dude, you're just showing up. You got to show, you got to show up and prep our package for us. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, okay. It's like sometimes people understand and listen, and sometimes they don't. (laughs) But this is what I found was my success. Now, let's go back to the failures, uh, you know, in in ways that just didn't work. Um, Okay. So I jumped to being a director of photography. I left all my gaffing clients behind. And I didn't work for nine months and I didn't, and I just bought a house. Oh man. Okay. 
the pressure that was on me at that point was really strong. I mean, the weight of the world was on me. Luckily, Lydia was also, um, she was working at Children's Hospital as a nurse. So she was able to support me through this whole thing. And that's where, you know, in this business, it's really hard to succeed. And if you have a significant other that can be there to support you, the shoulder to cry on, the person to say, you know, you're going to be okay, it's going to be all right. You know, it's like I, I go to the ASC clubhouse, um, you know, and there's a lot of students that are there and talking to me and they ask me these same questions. And I said, when you have somebody that's by your side to, to support and help you through those days, I'll never forget Lydia and I, during this time, we were, our savings was gone and we went to Hughes market at the time. I think that turned into Ralph's, but uh, and we had gotten our groceries and we got to the line and we were literally pulling out quarters and everything. And we didn't have enough money and we had to put a lot of the stuff back because we just didn't have the money to be able to spend on that. And it's like we didn't have money for furniture. So I built furniture. I went to Home Depot and built it. We didn't have bed I built that. We didn't have, you know, all the little things that, uh, you know, uh, cost money and trying to save money to, to, you know, believe in my dream of becoming a director of photography. I was doing everything possible to try and cut corners and stay afloat. And then all of a sudden it hit. And once it hit, holy shit, was I off to the races, right? And, and, but that time was a really good, uh, you know, it kept me humble. And I find that there's a lot of people out there that just aren't humble. They're arrogant as shit. They think their shit doesn't stink. And, you know, uh, my best advice to all of you arrogant people out there is be humble. Uh, because as, as quick as you are at the top, you can be from hero to zero in 4.5 seconds. So it's like, be humble, be very grateful for everything that comes your way. I mean, I wake up every morning and I do a whole grateful uh, meditation because my life and my career and what I have and my kids and my family and my amazing wife. I mean, these things you have to be constantly grateful every day for your health and for what you have, what you've built uh, and, and just stay humble with all that. And that's what I think you know, not just these nine months, it was my upbringing. You know, we were lower middle class. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't just get things. I had to work towards them. I remember, you know, my son was like, oh yeah, let's get this and let's get that. And let's download that off of Apple new, you know, tunes and da, da, da. I said, you know, that goodbye yellow brick road that I've been introducing him to, to Elton John's, it was a double LP set. I saved up for six months for that as a kid. I finally got enough to buy that $24 uh, double set. But this is, you know, was my upbringing. So it's like being humble and, and, and just 
loving life and everything that goes along with it is, is uh, I think, the right way to roll out. Well, that, that's very inspiring. And, and I mean, just an amazing story. And it's, again, stuff that I certainly can relate to. Stuff that I've experienced as well. I mean, coming to LA, right? I mean, just being so... It is very difficult, yeah. especially trying to make a career transition. You have to really dig deep. And, and you know, and you were talking right now. I mean, like, we didn't talk about cinematography. We didn't talk about, say, the technical skills. It was a lot about just the softer skills, your personality, right? Being, being proactive, being humble. Absolutely. You go into film school, you are not ever taught how to lead. And on Terminator Salvation, I'm leading 269, you know, technicians. Okay, that's a huge responsibility. And I failed a lot of times at leadership. I was very hard on my crew. I expected them to to know exactly what I was thinking when I didn't communicate what I was thinking. (laughs) That's really hard (laughs) to do. (laughs) And they'd always come up to me and they're like, Shane, we are not mind readers. If you do not tell us what we're going to do, there's no reason for you to yell at us. Okay, and I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. But I'm still going to yell at you again. Why didn't you do that thing? You know, it's like my learn my leadership skills were not there. There was not a course on career building. There was not a course on team building, on how you inspire your team and how you get them to take the hill day after day after day for you. Because when you belittle the crew and when you beat them down and push them to the breaking point, why are they going to come back to you and still give you their 150 or 180%? Well, I would ask my crew that. And they were like, Shane, the only reason I'm doing it is because you're talented. If you weren't talented, I would have left six years ago. But you still should not lead like this. And I was like, you know what? I need to really go back and start reading books on how to lead and how to um, strive for excellence, but not with the scrutiny of like, oh my God, you didn't tighten that just the exact way. I'm going to grind down on you and, and hold you accountable. So I started to really grow as, as a director of photography, and it took me way too long to understand how to lead. I'm just saying it took me way too long. Uh, I just want to, you know, beat myself up over that because there's a lot of crew members out there that I know I have pissed off and pushed the wrong way and, and belittled and beaten down that, that is, that's not the Shane Hurlbut of 2022 that, that was, or, you know, was the Shane Hurlbut of 2016. I I've really tried to, Uh, lead in a much different style. And that style is very simple. It's three things. Every morning you walk on set, you are there before the crew is every day. I sit there, I get my breakfast and I just consume the day. What I go through the day. And then when people come in, they're the first one that I see. And they go, hey, Shane, how you doing? I only word two words, freaking fantastic. That's what comes out of my mouth when I'm walking on set and the grip and electrics are putting on their belts and everything. And they're like, hey, Shane, how you doing? Freaking fantastic. How about you? And they're like, damn, 
It's freaking fantastic. Every day is freaking fantastic. So that sets a bar, mm-hmm. right? Yep. When you come in grumpy and, hey, oh, good, or okay, you know, that is exactly what it is. How how do you feel when I say, I'm freaking fantastic, or, hey, Shane, how are you doing? Okay. You know, it's like, oh, not so great, yeah, you know? <laughs> right? So that sets a standard. Yeah. The next thing is, okay, I have no short-term memory. So if we did something and it was a failure, like, uh, okay, we're doing this shot and the focus just wasn't there. And we tried seven or eight times and we just didn't get it. I come up to the first AC and I go, okay, here's the deal. I have no short-term memory. Okay. I'm not going to remember that you weren't able to get this shot done. Let's just try our best and try to prepare a little better for this scenario the next time. And that is a weight of the world off of people because they understand that they're just going to try their best and they're going to be more prepared. And you're being the best thing too with leadership is just be curious, ask questions all the time. How are you doing today? You know, what did you do last weekend? Hey, what, so what have you been learning? What do you, it's just like this, you become humble by asking and being curious and you don't become this overlord that is like looking down on his, you know, team and saying, okay, all right, you over here, you know, it's like you become one and you become equal. That's the biggest thing. It's like, I don't ever see myself above my third electric or best boy electric or grip or anyone. We are a team all at the same level. We might have different responsibilities and people that we are held accountable to, but when it's all done, we're all the same level and we're all this amazing team. But, and the, the final thing is just always, um, okay, millennials learned by give, be, being given a, given a trophy when they didn't do anything, <laughs> right? Like, I, I'll never forget it with soccer. I was like, wow, Kira, we, you didn't win that game, but you got a trophy? And she goes, yeah. And I was like, yeah, but you didn't win. The other team won. Yeah, but we got a trophy anyway. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how this works. <laughs> right. So I literally give out these Oscar trophies. They're these cheesy little plastic things. And I give out three per week. And they have a they have five $20 bills fanned out behind the Oscar. And I have the name so I do one in the grip department, one in the electric department, and one in the camera department. Every single week, one person is highlighted. We all come to the set in the beginning of the day, and I give out the trophies. And everyone applauds. And then all of a sudden, they're like, well, why is Frank getting the trophy three weeks in a row? Well, Frank must be doing something that Shane really likes and is, <laughs> is a big deal. So why don't you take some notes on that and make make sure, see if you're going to be able to win the trophy. And it's not like it's a lot of money. My God, it's a $300 a week. But that is a lot of money because of the pride that comes with it. And this the 
showing people that not everyone gets a trophy, but the people that really go above and beyond do. So those are my kind of three or four things of leadership that I've really started implementing. And it has been a game changer for me as a cinematographer. Like I never used to get thank you notes from any of my crew because I beat them down and pushed them to the the breaking point. Now it's thank you note after thank you note after thank you note after this, after thank you so much for, you know, looking after our safety. Thank you much so for protecting us. Thank you for just being a great DP and having a lot of fun. You know, it's like these, uh, this is what's happening now. And it's been a, absolute systemic change, but it's like, none of this is ever taught to you. And, you know, some people obviously learn it faster than I did. It took me a long time to really take that responsibility and understand how to lead uh, really well. Well, that's the thing. It's important to understand that a big part of this job is being a manager. Yes. That's a side from all the creative side of things. And being a good manager requires good communication. Speaking of communication, you're not only communicating with your team, but you're also reaching out to other departments. Exactly. And you're not only just leading your team, you're also leading the art department. You're also leading the hair, makeup, wardrobe, director. You know, you're helping lead this whole uh, team. You know, it's like, he or he is the general and and I'm the captain and I'm, I'm, you know, deploying the forces, you know, and, and that's, and it's the communication is the most difficult thing I do as a cinematographer is being able to communicate that vision. And it's taken me a good amount of time to master that. And, you know, it's like, I really found out something that was, that I've been deploying over the last five or six movies is I found that if you tell your team, you're going to go from New York to Los Angeles and I'm only going to basically give you the roadmap to the Rockies. You're, you're not going to be able to give production all the specific mandates the, the specialty gear, all the stuff. But if I give you a roadmap that is so granular, so specific to these are just the lights that I'm using at this location. This is the blocking. This is the shot list. These are the storyboards. Now they have a roadmap to follow. And all I'm telling you, once that roadmap is in place, everything falls into to line. I'm not having to fight for man days and extra gear and extra things because I've already showed them exactly what the roadmap is and they're asking for exactly that and it's fitting within the budget. Of course, sometimes it's like, you know, we got to scale this down or whatever. Uh, but in the scheme of things, it gets 75% there. And then the other 25% is fitting that big grand vision into the budgetary box. Shane, before uh, we get to your experience as an educator, I just want to talk real quick about this idea about having alligator skin, which I've heard you talk about, uh, which relates to resilience in this industry. You know, coming up the ladder for me was... It had its, 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 it was a roller coaster ride. There were days where it was amazing and there were days where it was not. 
And I found that I had really great mentors that I've kind of gone into what their, um, you know, what each one of them gave uh, to me as, you know, my experience, but they also led very specifically, very different. And I had one mentor that really led with a very loud yelling voice and was very, uh, you know, intense. And that mentor really gave me my alligator skin. And to, to this day, you know, you talk to crew members and they really don't understand the whole idea of resiliency. Because when, when we see a roadblock, at least I'm a boomer, right? Uh, so when I see a roadblock, I start to see, okay, how can I manipulate around that roadblock? Most millennials see the roadblock, they're going to go and f- turn around and go another direction. I will try to get around that roadblock, to push through that roadblock, to find a way forward, not parallel, right? So th- that as uh, a lot of just, you know, if, if you go on set and you have a director that yells at you for 60 days straight and you keep that in so you do not waterfall that down. Uh, you know, they say shit rolls downhill, right? So you have to be the dam. And that dam can hold like the Hoover Dam for a while, but then it's going to break, right? <laughs> but that resiliency to be able to work through that and take that and and internalize it and take that yelling and screaming and try to funnel it into something positive is what resiliency is all about. It's taking anything negative and trying to spin it. So when I had the director yelling at me for 60 days straight, I was doing the movie was amazing. We did a great film. Why did he have to yell? Well, that was his style, right? But that style can be very counteractive, right? It doesn't get people really fired up. But I was like to my my crew, I go, guys, we need to be fired up because this is a big movie for me. I want this on my, you know, reel. I know it's going to be awesome. People are going to talk about this film uh, for many years because we are doing groundbreaking stuff. So have the resiliency to just let it roll off a duck's back. And that is really what it is. There's there's ways where somebody can yell at you and you can be saying, you know, hey, I really don't like you talking to me like this. It's not. And with him, that wasn't even an option. If I went that way, I knew it would only have destroyed me. So you have to create this alligator skin that you can have this. You know, I'll never forget. um, Okay, Uh, I'm sitting in the dailies trailer. Okay, Mr. 3000. Producers, first assistants, the director, and we're watching the scene that we shot with Bernie Mac 
in a um, in a parking garage. And, you know, it was a very. uh, It was a scene where Bernie Mac basically laid it on this young whippersnapper that, you know, dude, you might be at the top of your game right now. But I'm telling you, it doesn't take long for you to be just knocked right down. And it was a very uh, dark moment. So I lit it ballsy with a very, very dark man. The color timer printed it on the lights that we had gone with in the past, and they could not see Bernie. The producer and the director walked out of the trailer and they basically said, Shane, I'm not sure that you'll have a job tomorrow. Oh, man. The studio is going to react to this. And, uh, you know, this is not good. And I said, guys, I know that it's there. He's just got to change his printer lights just a little bit. And, you know, let's let's have him rerun this. Let's have him uh, do another uh, print. And let's look at it again. And so for 48 hours, while that was turning around, I thought I was not going to be, uh, you know, I was going to lose this. This is the second job with Charles Stone. This was a big movie. It was, you know, 50 some odd million. We were, you know, shooting in three different states on all these different, uh, you know, um, baseball diamonds and all this stuff. There was a lot on this movie to succeed. And for those 48 hours, it was pins and needles for me. But when we got it back with the new printer lights, you saw Bernie perfect. It fit the emotion of the story. And then it was like, oh, you were so right with that. You know, I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's like, my God, I almost killed myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's like, my God, what I felt for those 48 hours was Ooh. the lowest part of my career. Oh, it man. just really cut me to the core. So this is what I talk about with the resiliency. It's like you have to be able to take this in and be able to 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 deflect it or let it roll off of you and and not just react uh, you know, there's so many times in the heat of the moment that people will fire off at you and everything. And you just got to, you know, let it roll off you and just do your job at 180 percent, no matter how much that, you know, cannon comes at you with with you're not doing it right. And why didn't you pan there and tilt up faster? And, you know, I told you, Shane, we should have been doing this this way. And now we're not going to get that. And, ah, you know, just this just verbal abuse cannon. Uh, you just need to, to be that dam and let it roll off. And, and uh, that's kind of the resiliency and the alligator skin that I kind of talk about. Yeah. I think it also has to do, you know, this has to do a lot with having uh, you know, being confident in your abilities, right? Because I think we're all, we're all going to experience that kind of moment, maybe of self doubt or someone coming at us, Right, questioning what we've done, but also knowing that, hey, you know what? I got this. Like, I feel confident in myself and what I can do. Yes. Say as a, as, a, as a DP, as an editor, as a director. But I have to also say to that is by being a great DP, you're always making yourself incredibly uncomfortable and doing stuff that you've never done before because that's how you push yourself. And that is a very hard place to be. My whole life, I've lived that place. And it's, 
it's tiring because every time you go in, it's like I try to reinvent the wheel every single time. And by doing that, it's uh, it's very stressful. It's very emotionally uh, draining. But it also you don't have the confidence because you really haven't done it before. So when all this comes at you, like into the blue was the scenario where the director yelled at me for, you know, 60 days straight. I had never done a water, a movie on the water ever. I had never worked on water before. I have, I had never shot underwater. Uh, and we're doing 99 days underwater and 60 topside. So you can see how I was challenging myself completely. And at the same time, this waterfall of anger and, and yelling and screaming was just coming at me like, uh, you know, a fire hose. So, you know, trying to hold that back, trying to be that dam, trying to let it roll off my back. You know, some days I succeeded, some days I didn't, uh, you know, but it, it really, it's a difficult balance for a direct, for any creative that wants to challenge themselves and push them and tip of the spear and all that stuff. So you got to stay humble, get that alligator skin so you can let stuff roll off, challenge yourself and push yourself out of the comfort zone, but still have the confidence and ability within your heart that you know you're going to succeed even though you're out of your comfort zone. So you got to have that kind of, you know, that chakra inside you that just has the confidence that no matter whether you don't know what you're doing, you've never done it before, but you have the confidence that you know in yourself, you're going to pull it off anyway. Ooh, man, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. I like the stomach turning. <laughs> I mean, think about the, oh. the deadlines that they put on you that you have to turn around and they they flip the script on you. So you're like, uh, you know, we're, we're changing all this. And then, but we need this. We're going on air, you know? And it's like, I, I know the stress that you're under. I, I've seen it on other editors and stuff too. And and so you know what I'm talking about. It's it's very, very, and maybe it's an editing style that you haven't really done a lot of. And now they're asking you to do this and it's challenging you. And you're like trying to figure it out, try to learn at the same time that you're doing it. And, you know, that's, it's a stressful place to be. Yeah. That takes me back to when I used to work in, in live television. I mean, talk about deadlines. Oh my God. Talk about deadlines. <laughs> Shane, I, I want to now just, Talk about your experience as an educator. I mean, you you started several years ago with Hurlbut Visuals, then Shane's Inner Circle, and, and, and now you're doing this Filmmakers Academy. Yes. That I'm so happy to be a part of as an editing mentor. How did you get interested in education? And take us now through that through that journey and then to eventually now starting the Filmmakers Academy. So Imagine being uh, your whole life that you grow up from zero to 21, being surrounded by two educators. My mom was a sixth grade school teacher, which is probably one of the most pivotal roles within the K through 12 environment. You're becoming a teenager. It's where you really, she can mold the person so much. My mom was an amazing teacher. My dad was a professor's assistant at Cornell. So he had a whole other uh, standard that he was, was uh, teaching to. 
he was he was responsible for teaching all of the grad students uh, how to you know plant crops, how to fertilize, how to harvest everything that happened within the world of agronomy, which is basically farming. Uh, he would be teaching them so they understood if they're going to do these, you know hybrids and they're going to be planting them at these different times or you got to make sure that the water is consistent across both these things all this stuff so you can you know it's like this whole practice and so being surrounded by those educators my whole life i learned a lot i saw my mom you know doing her homework plans and grading papers and all this stuff and talking to students on the phone when they didn't understand it and guiding them and really uh nurturing their their knowledge and and uh understanding of it i mean endless hours i would hear her on the phone she would always pick up the phone um you know to answer any question a student had and that really was something I now pull from, right? Lydia had the idea. We were literally sitting in Puerto Rico in the middle of shooting Act of Valor. And she was looking at all the footage that I was doing shooting and all this, uh, you know, kind of spear, you know, this tip of the spear kind of, you know, really uh, trailblazing this DSLR platform, which everyone was still using it as a DSLR. I took the thing, I put it on a rig, I put a Panavision mount on it that I had milled myself. I put the lens on it and I started to turn this thing into a movie making machine, not just a DSLR, not not just a, a still camera. And she goes, what you're doing is brown breaking, you're brown breaking. We, we need to throw gasoline on this. You need to share your knowledge. So I was like, okay. So we started this little blog and the blog took off like wildfire. And as much as I shared with everyone, I was getting so much more back in return because this was at a global scale. This DSLR revolution really was a systemic change within our film industry that we never will go back. What did it do? It made camera manufacturers stop building cameras that were 70 pounds and, and two and a half feet long. It, it's, it's made them think about how we could move a camera very easily. Then all of a sudden the movie started to come into play and the gimbal work that happened. That gimbal work would never have happened if it wasn't for the DSLR revolution. Then it also gave filmmakers they didn't even know they were filmmakers. They just knew that they had a camera in their hand that could deliver images like they're seeing on a 60 foot screen in active valor. And it inspired the shit out of them. And it's like now they can take this camera on a small little card. I don't have to roll film. I don't have to buy the film. I don't have to develop the film. I don't have to process the film. I don't have to then put it into Telecine so I can get it on a digital file. Now the digital file goes right out of my camera, right into my laptop, and I'm editing the piece right there. I'm color correcting the piece, and then I'm spitting it out to a 60-foot screen. Never before was that possible. So all of a sudden, it united these amazing creatives that had these ideas and all these stories to share, but they didn't know how to do it. 
So it's like Lydia and I said, why don't we fill that gap? And that's what the Hurlbut visuals was. That was what the Hurl blog was. And then all of a sudden, everyone wanted more. They wanted more information. They wanted more video tutorials. They wanted me to go down the rabbit holes. They didn't want me to just do it from a, uh, you know, kind of a top, you know, uh, um, they wanted they wanted it all. They wanted the why and they wanted the how. So I was like, all right, so let's create this little membership uh, site called Shane's Inner Circle, and we'll make it like the Netflix for filmmaking. And we got 4,000 people to sign up on this thing, and it exploded overnight. And it was awesome. But then they wanted even more. What I was putting out wasn't enough. They wanted to go even deeper. They wanted more. They wanted color correction. They wanted camera assisting. They wanted gimbal tech. They wanted script writing. They wanted producing. They wanted all this stuff. So we're like, okay, let's band together. Let me start to reach out to all the people that were a huge part of shaping me as an artist and friends that that I worked alongside and let's reach out to all of them and see if they want to be able to share their knowledge and be a part of the filmmakers Academy. And that's what started in the fall of 2021. When we launched the filmmakers Academy, I started to get all my friends and all my colleagues and we started building this brand to what it is uh, three months now, uh, but it's really taking off. We just launched our app. So it's across every Android and Apple and Roku and Amazon and Apple TV. All this stuff is now available. So you're able to really, I would say, if you were looking at the Filmmakers Academy, it is your magic bullet to jump over the competition in five years. So you literally will, will jump five years and basically, you know, taking our education platform. Uh, and because I wanted to build something that if I had it, when I started out as this lonely grip truck driver thinking about becoming a DP, if I had all the skills of understanding what a grip does, understanding what a dolly grip does, understanding when, how to run power, how to electrify a set, how to, how to you know, build a team, how to lead a team, how to team build, how to you know, um, do all everything that I was really not taught in film school. I'm going to, you know, the Filmmakers Academy and all of our 11 or 12 mentors are going to teach you uh, how to be a great filmmaker. Well, that's the thing. It's about being a filmmaker. It's important to understand all aspects of filmmaking. You know, I watch all these videos on Filmmakers Academy about cinematography, color correction, directing, producing, camera operating. All that helps me to become not only a better editor, but a more well-rounded filmmaker. You know, having watched that, it's like, you know, exactly what you said. It's kind of what I would have wanted, say, when I was trying to break into 
you know, editing narrative films, right? It's just, exactly. It's like, give it to me straight. Give me what I need to know to to work in this industry. And it's like, in my case, as, as an editor, it's like, yeah, having, you know, tell me how do I, you know, behave uh, around producers? What, you know, reading the room when I'm in there working with showrunners, right? Yes. I mean, it's these things, like you said, it's that stuff that you they do not teach you in film school. Exactly. And, and that's what you want to, that's what we try to extract from all of our mentors. It's not just the why and the how, it's the why and the how you roll out in the room when you pose a question or when you have to rifle down and say, you know, I know we've done this six or seven times, but this is the right way to go. It's like, I was talking to Dave Cole, uh, who's uh, our colorist and colored nine or 10 of my movies. And, you know, he said the same thing. He goes, you got to read the room. You got to get in the pocket of the director of photography and the director and see how that relationship is going before you ever think about interjecting your two cents into the equation. And you have the same thing with you in the room. You got the showrunner, you got the director, you're in there. It's like, when to say, reading the room, understanding the cues, uh, you know, all these things, it's just not taught and there's nothing out there. So, you know, our education and people keep on saying it countless times, there is nothing like it out there on the internet. Nothing. You can get a master class at the ASC or all these stuff, but it still is not teaching you how to lead. It's not teaching you how to read the room. It's not talking about alligator skin. It's not talking about the resiliency. And everyone wants the the how, the how, the how. Tell me how to do it. Tell me how to do it. I remember when I was in in uh, school, didn't you want to get on that you know camera and and grab it and get the lenses out and shoot with it and everything? You didn't want to know why. You just wanted to know how, right? <laughs> so it's like everyone wanted to get to the how. But the why is so important. And then the the other social skills and, and personality and reading the room and leadership and everything, those are the fundamentals of you having a long, successful career. Yeah, because it's like, you know, and hearing just these, you know, stories, personal experiences, right, from professional Hollywood professionals, you know, what have you gone through? You know, what have the challenges you face? I mean, you have a, a, obviously a, an amazing career. I'm sure you've seen a lot and experienced a lot, right? And so if I can hear that from, say, someone like you or anyone else that's working, say, in Hollywood, and, and I can learn from that, you know, that that's the best. I mean, that's amazing to having this access to people telling you, sharing with you these experiences, things that, you know what, you might come across this and this is how I handled it. Exactly. And then with the FA, you know, the Filmmakers Academy, you can take it even deeper. You can go on for one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And I have had over a hundred and some odd calls of one-on-one -on -one mentoring, which I'm an hour long. They can ask me anything. And they usually load in a ton of questions. And I, Christ, I've had people that load in links to their footage and stuff like that. And they ask me about my exposures or some people just want to know about life. And then some people want to get really granular on other things. It's a whole mixed bag. But getting this one-on-one -on -one experience of just being able to tap into that 30 plus years of wisdom is Something that I'm telling you, I these calls that I've had, it has literally changed people's trajectory. They have gone. I had somebody in Scotland that I, I talked to and he goes, you know, I'm I'm I, I think I'm out of this business. 
And I go, what, what's gotten you so down? He goes, I just, I can't, I can't see it anymore. I can't get through this. It's just nothing is going my way. And I said, have you ever meditated? And he goes, no. I said, all right, I'm going to send you this meditation. And don't see me as like this woohoo guy. Okay. This thing changes, changed me on how I lead. And it's 22 minutes and you have to listen to it every day. And it's called the power of attraction. What you, what your thoughts are, you will attract them if you continue to have them. And I sent him the, the, uh, the meditation. Two weeks later, he said he got a big job. Four months later, he got his first feature. You know, it's like you can start to see what is happening. And so much of it is mindset. It really is. If you have a positive mindset and you attract what you want to shoot, it will come to you. But you cannot do it once here and then once a year from now. And it has to be this continuous mantra. And it's got to be humble, gratitude, asking for, you know, um, you know, putting that, that, uh, you know, it's like, I put, I have a something up on the wall that is all the directors I want to work with. And I just look, stare at it every day. And have I worked with, uh, them? I've worked with a couple, a couple of them. So it's like that it works. And you just have to keep on doing it. So it's like the education, you got to think of the Filmmakers Academy is not just an online resource. It can be offline as well with our mentoring. You need that brick and mortar foundation. It cannot be just from where you're starting now. You need to learn from the masters, from what they've done in the past. You need to look to Alfred Hitchcock to Steven Spielberg, to Stanley Kubrick, to, you know, Martin Scorsese, just because they did it back in the 70s and 60s and everything doesn't mean that what they're doing is out of date. We're still doing exactly what they taught us to do to this day. So it's like this, this content is something that is also at your point in your career, you're going to be able to take from it, maybe 30%, then you're going to get to a point in your career where now you need to go back and rewatch that content because now you're going to take another 30% of it. And then you're going to, because as you move up in your career, I mean, I'm constantly going back reading ASC magazines from 20 years ago, because I remember there was this weird process that was done. Uh, where they took a color negative and they put it through a black and white fixer bath. Well, I'm shooting Terminator Salvation. That was 12 years ago in the magazine. Not a lot of people had used it. I'm shooting a movie about machines taking over the world. Hmm. They're putting it through a black and white fixer, which retains 10 times the silver in the negative. Okay, 
whoa, what's that going to do to the, the, the positive? Well, my God, it's going to drench it with silver. Well, I'm shooting a post-apocalyptic film, which I've seen everyone do post-apocalyptic in this brown, dingy time. Well, I got machines that are titanium, that are taking over the world. So let's make the world silver and cyans and desaturated skin tones and everything. And that became the look of Terminator Salvation. To this day, that film holds up completely. And I used a process that was 20, 12 years, you know, in the past. So for everyone that you got to learn your breath, you got to understand the masters, you got to pull from the past because those little idiosyncrasies is what I find. I'm always sprinkling into everything that I shoot in this current digital age. Hey, it's in the fundamentals, right? It's the fundamentals. And, and also, I, just want to, I mean, it's so important just to know, obviously, uh, you know, where things come from, the foundation, like you said, you know, where, you know, these things that, you know, were done many, many years ago. I mean, like you said, the same thing I learned uh, through, you know, at a local TV station, you know, well, you know, 25 years ago, uh, things that I learned then about, say, even, you know, started calibrating, you know, monitors, you know, uh, I mean, did everything with audio and, and, and running tapes, all these things that, in some way, one form or another, I'm still using those techniques of what I've learned back then. Yes. And also, I want to say, uh, shout out to my friend, Andrew Separately. He wanted me to tell you that Terminator Salvation is the best shot uh, of the Terminator films. <laughs> Just want to get that uh, in there, because Andrew uh, is a big fan of you and your work. Uh, Andrew, th thank you so much. I really appreciate that. that. That was a labor of love, that baby, I have to say. Where are we heading now with this new technology? Cameras are just getting, you know, we're shooting 8K. Now uh, we're shooting with our phones. Um, you know, people are making movies, really good movies with their phones. I mean, like, what's the future now of not only cinematography, but of filmmaking? Where are we headed? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll never forget standing up on the stage at NAB in 2010 and i basically said it is going to be this with a big lens on the front of it and that is all we're going to be shooting with because the way that i can move this camera with the stabilization that's built into this thing and if i'm able to change my lenses so it's going to be much more cinematic and i'm able to move the camera so effortlessly I can stick it in a corner. I can get, you know, low angles. I mean, you think about it when you do this. I'm like, how many cameras can you do that with this? Look at the thinness of this. Well, I just want to let our listeners know that Shane is holding an iPhone at the moment. You set the thing on the floor. When I'm setting a camera, even a red, that's a very small camera. The lens is still this high, right? It's not here, right? So it's like, it's going to come down to a amazing, sensitive 8K, 12K sensor that is basically harnessed within a small little box that we can move absolutely effortlessly. That is going to be the future of filmmaking. And I remember standing on that stage and there were so many naysayers out in that crowd. And I still will hold it to this day. Stuff is gonna continue to get smaller stuff. Look at what GoPro and the Komodo. The Komodo is a perfect example of taking 
the helicopter completely and grounding it. I do. I am never going to use a helicopter again because I was just on a Toyota branding film that I shot in North Carolina. And we brought in Beverly Hills Aerial and they had a high speed drone with a Komodo with a anamorphic zoom and it would do 130 miles an hour. And it was only this big. And it could dive and it could track this race car. Everything that I did in Need for Speed, this thing could have done and could have spun down in and circled around the car and made it 10 times more interesting than the helicopter pilot was able to do. Because what was he doing? He was moving a camera that was this big in a big, huge uh, basketball with a helicopter that is a massive piece of machinery. Okay, now I'm taking something that can fit in my hands, spread this wide and do exactly the same thing. This is the future and this is where we're going. And and it's so exciting because every time I see a glimpse of it, like I did on that Toyota job, because, you know, up until that time, it was these large lifter drones that didn't have the that had the quality but they can only go 40 miles an hour. Now I have the quality of a, of, of cinema on it, not in a GoPro third chip size with a full super 35 sensor that is now moving at 130 miles an hour and diving in ways that a, a helicopter could ever never dive. So there's the future. The future is small. The future is going to be much more mobile. I think the way we start to move the camera is going to be much more immersive and, and feel like you're one with the ca- characters like 1917, the Revenant, what Chivo and Roger Deakins did with you feeling immersed in the moment and you going on this journey with them is also where we're going to be taking cinema as well, because it needs that kind of, uh, I mean, I felt so viscerally involved in the Revenant when he was having that bear fight. I thought I was getting chewed up at the same time. That is great cinema when you can infuse that kind of emotion and that feeling to an audience. And then I think lighting is going to change with the LED technology. We are going to see lighter LEDs. We're going to see more powerful LEDs. We're going to see CRI values that match tungsten and daylight perfectly where there's not this weird kind of, you know, it not looking so right, you know, because it's not, it's 92 CRI instead of 97 CRI. And you see that in the digital landscape. It just feels like a fake light. So that LED technology and the being able to do do everything on your iPhone or an iPad to control all your lights on set, that's already starting to happen. Uh, I was I was working with my uh, lighting designer on my last film, and he was able to do it all virtually. He was able to get the stage uh, schematics, where all the light bars were. He was able to put his lights on all those bars virtually, and he was able to design all of the lighting virtually without ever being in the space. And then when he got in there and actually engaged it, 
it was damn close. It was he just had to refocus the lights just a little bit. But everything that he was doing was all done virtually while he was on set with me. And I would ask him, hey, bring the Asteras number 29 down five points. He was sitting there and he'd do it. And then he'd move right over to his virtual thing and continue to still set that all up. So you're going to see that technology continue to ramp up. Uh yeah, that's that's my best stab into the future for you. Exciting times for sure. You're a very busy man. You're shooting, uh, you know, feature films, Hollywood feature films, and doing being an educator here with the Filmmakers Academy. What keeps you going? <laughs> Caffeine. No, uh, <laughs> I I have been a very passionate person my whole life. Everyone has always told me that I have the energy of ten men. Uh, my dad was that way. He was. Um, my God, he was just a powerhouse. I, I called him Superman. I just couldn't believe how he was. He not only was an educator, he also farmed 350 acres at our uh, on our farm because that's where he used a lot of experimentation and everything to continue to you know, master his craft. Uh, so he was doing three jobs. My mom was doing three jobs. I was surrounded by all that. Uh, so, you know, my work ethic is very strong and I have a, a lot of energy and I try to uh, pass on all that passion and all that inspiration into every uh, member of the Filmmakers Academy, as well as all of my team that uh, surrounds me and and uh, builds me up and makes me look great. That's so awesome, Shane. And, and again, like, just congrats on everything you've done, uh, not only with, uh, with you know, uh, shooting films, but obviously uh, educating people. Uh, like I said, I've been following you for, for many years. I've learned a lot from you. So And so I'm very grateful for it. Just, I mean, it was exciting to have you here on this podcast. And uh, thanks again. And I appreciate uh, you giving us, uh, giving uh, this podcast uh, your time. So Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Joaquin, for this uh, opportunity. And uh, I, I cannot wait to see you in a couple days uh, so we can start uh, your whole side of the Filmmakers Academy um, as our master editor. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, definitely looking forward to that, Shane. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, uh, you know, have a lot to talk about uh, editing for sure. And also the connection between cinematography and editing. No, that's that's going to be so huge because I'm looking to learn so much from you. And I cannot wait to be in that room and just hearing the questions and seeing your terms and how you're doing it. And it's going to take my level of cinematography even higher. And that's what I'm hoping for all of our members too. It's like, what I'm trying to do is, you know, with our education, we're doing cinematography adjacent. So you're learning uh, not only how to be an editor, but also the terms and tools that's going to make you a better cinematographer. So it's like you can learn to be a great editor through Joaquin's courses that we're going to be doing. But at the same time, you can learn to be a better cinematographer because of it. Absolutely. And I think there's a strong connection there. Honestly, the understanding the lens helps me and my, me when picking out shots in, in my work. So uh, that'll it's all great. Check it out, guys. Filmmakersacademy.com. All right, Shane, have an excellent rest of your day. And uh, thanks again for being on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joaquin. Take care. Well, Shane definitely kept his promise of delivering tons of golden nuggets there. Certainly some great advice for not only cinematographers, but editors, producers, directors, anyone that is wanting to be a filmmaker. 
So don't forget to check out the Filmmakers Academy at filmmakersacademy.com. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to episode 29 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And also share this episode with anyone that is looking to be a well-rounded filmmaker. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, the creator of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. Stay safe, stay positive. Stay positive.